Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on June 26th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week we'll take a look at the contents of the July issue of Scientific American magazine with Editor-in-Chief John Rennie, which includes taking a look backward. We spoke in the offices at the magazine. Hey, John. How you doing? Fine. Thanks. July, Scientific American. Indeed. Features a very interesting and uh, nostalgic letter from YU. Well, yes, exactly. Me. Uh, looking back, uh, keying off of our uh, our story, of, uh, looking back at the, uh, uh, the Apollo program and uh, what it is that uh, some future astronauts going to Mars might uh, learn from the experiences of the uh, lunar astronauts, uh, I uh, comment on, I uh, reminisce back on uh, my own memories 40 years ago uh, uh, to, to when we had, of course, you know, Apollo 11 and the first moon landing. July 20th. Right. Is the anniversary coming up. That's right. And you were just a wee tyke. Yes, exactly. Minus 20 years old. Yeah, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, very exciting for me and for everyone else, of course, looking back and uh, listening to Walter Cronkite, uh, the most trusted newsman in America, telling us all about uh, the, the Apollo program and uh, what what it is the astronauts might be experiencing when they landed on the moon. You know, a tremendously exciting time overall. And uh, I just always, this seemed like as we were looking at the 40th anniversary of that first moon landing, both to run this article about uh, the astronauts' experiences by uh, Harrison Jack Schmidt, the, uh, the, the only really trained scientist who then also became an astronaut and went to the moon. Um, so it was a good time to run that article and also for me to uh, to you know, reminisce about uh, all of this myself because of uh, certain little experiences uh, of my own. Such as? Well, because this uh, this issue, the July 2009 issue, actually marks my uh, my last issue as editor-in-chief of the magazine. I'm uh, stepping down. I've been at Scientific American for 20 years at this point, uh, and I've been uh, editor-in-chief for almost 15 of those, and I think it's probably pretty good time for my sake and for the magazines to a lot of, let a lot of fresh air blow through. And, uh, you know, happily, Marietta Cristina, the executive editor for the past eight years, she's going to slide right into the editor-in-chief slot and make sure that the quality of the magazine stays terrific. And what are your plans coming up, or are you just going to put your feet up and uh, catch up with some of those... Some of those Superman comics you've been... You know, they've been stuck. They've just been stacking up for so many years. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm going to be writing, editing, doing some things for Scientific American and uh, various other places in the future. So, And, uh, yes, taking a good long rest. I'm looking forward to dropping my brain into a nice big glass of water for a while. Ice water. Yes. Something nice and cool. Mm, refreshing. But we know, I do know, you have some TV appearances coming up. Uh, well, I guess that's right. Yeah, I'm going to be appearing in, uh, there's a program that is uh, going to be on the History Channel later this summer uh, called uh, Science Impossible. I'm on a number of uh, episodes of that and uh, oh, lots of other, lots of other different projects that are in the works. TV is John Rennie. Well, so, so we go back 40 years and you're, you know, yet to be TV's John Rennie. <laughs> and what, what, I mean, I, I remember it as well. Sure. Because I'm much younger than you, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but you've heard it was right. very exciting. I heard it was really something when human beings actually set foot on the moon. And, right. and what what do you remember as as your your primary reaction? You know, I think it was 
the thing that really stays with me so much was was the wonderful sense of uncertainty about the whole thing. Now, we, now at this point, there's no question. Scientists had uh, certainly determined a lot about what the moon was like. Um, I mean, we knew a lot about the structure. We had you know pretty good ideas about the kinds of uh, this kinds of circumstances that the uh, the astronauts would find themselves in when they landed. But you still never quite knew. And I think especially when you're looking at that through the eyes of a uh, what then. Uh, 10-year-old boy, uh, it's, you know, very, very exciting to imagine what, uh, what all of that could, could possibly be like. Uh, you know, will the lunar module, will it somehow drop into giant pits of moon dust and vanish forever beneath the surface? Um, will something go technically wrong? And would the uh, astronauts who were, uh, on the surface of the moon, would they be unable to uh, rejoin the command module orbiting? Uh, you know, w- what if, uh, Michael Collins got upset and decided he was just going to come back to Earth early. Uh, not always realistic questions, mind you, but the kinds of things that I think at least the 10-year-olds at the time uh, right. spent a lot of time thinking about. Michael Collins, of course, orbiting around the moon. He was the third member of the, of the Apollo mission. He did not land on the moon, but right. he was up there. And, of course, when they got back up and knocked on the door, he's the one who said, who is it? <laughs> yeah. But, no. Um, yeah, I remember... I was 11 and I remember worrying about the same things and, and also, you know, it, it might be hard to believe now, but I distinctly remember some so-called experts being very concerned that the dust was going to be so fine right. that the astronauts would actually just sink right into it. Yeah. Well, the lunar module mm-hmm. would sink right into it, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of where they landed. And it turned out that, you know, the dust was whatever it was, an inch or two right. of yeah. dust. And then there was, I was going to say terra firma, but that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's the what wrong phrase. Luna firma, I guess. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Uh, Underneath it. So we've got this article by Harrison Schmidt. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the, one of the great things, I've had the opportunity myself to talk to two guys who've actually been to the moon. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that you get from them when you ask about what – what surprised you? What were the little things that maybe you didn't expect? Right. And I remember, you know, podcast listeners may remember, Buzz Aldrin was surprised about the dust, the way that the dust, when you stepped down, the way the dust floated up and then fell again mm-hmm. in the one-sixth gravity. Right, and the total vacuum. Right. It pops it's, up and it drops right back it's down. It's very right. different. And yeah. that's what he remembers as being the real kind of signature to him mm-hmm. that he was in a very strange place. Right. And and Schmidt in the article talks about the difficulty of the gloves. Right. That's what really stuck out for him. The the suit was fabulous. Mm-hmm. It worked great in fact because of the low pressure. The suit was pressurized obviously, but the pressure was less than you would have on earth and with the gravity being less he says you could pretty much keep up a good if you wanted to run in the mm-hmm. right you get into the right crouch position you could do an extended run at a solid six miles an hour, which is you know amazingly good. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, a lot of us would be hard pressed to do that just under kind of Earth conditions normally that way. Yeah, exactly. Ten minute miles on the moon in a in a big suit, right? 
but he's, the gloves drove him crazy. That mm-hmm. was really fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, because as as he describes, there's an enormous amount of work that was involved in in using your hands when you wore these gloves. And I think it's because the way they fit, I mean, it tended to just sort of, you got lots of abrasions inside. And I, I, I believe the reason is because, um, I, I think this is grossly oversimplifying the problem, but uh, of course, if you've got a pressurized spacesuit and you have it under vacuum circumstances. You don't want it to suddenly be that your astronaut suddenly is now like one of the the big balloons in in the Thanksgiving's Day Parade. Um, you know, he's got to still be able to move. So I believe that even, you know, every motion, whether you're, say, clenching your hand or unclenching your hand, it takes exertion, a certain amount of pressure. Otherwise, the suit wants to retain uh, its position, which you don't think about it, but there's that means there's a lot more work that's always going into that. And, and so, as he said, you know, by the time they would end uh, the different sorts of shifts of, of doing all the kinds of work, wearing these these pressure suit gloves, uh, it would be exhausting. His, his hands would ache. In the forearms. In so, the forearms, right. 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 But I thought it was fascinated though that he also said that of course because of the the lower gravity and the improved circulation efficiency from all of that the pain of that went away faster right. than it he would had have no on Earth. residual muscle soreness yeah. he said because the, the you're talking about circulation you're talking about mm-hmm. cardiovascular circulation right. right so your recovery from this exertion was incredibly rapid. Yeah. So that's one of the highlights. If you're going to go to the moon and you do a really strenuous workout, your recovery time will probably be pretty quick. That's right. Harrison Schmidt, I, I neglected to mention, was the other astronaut that I actually met. We were all, a whole bunch of people were on an eclipse, solar eclipse expedition, and he was one of the speakers on this thing. And the question came up about, you know, what he took away from it personally. And I remember him saying that the the thing that he got out of it personally was that when you're having an experience like being on the moon, which <laughs> I don't know if you can really say singular. that. Singular. That's a pretty singular thing, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there have been, what, 12 people ever who've done it. Uh, I forget. I think mm-hmm. it's 12. Um, the important thing is to really be there mm-hmm. mentally. Just right. be in that moment experiencing what you're experiencing so that, you know, you can, you can have that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about it in terms of this solar eclipse that we were about to see and what a, what a tremendous, amazing experience that is. Yep. And while, while you're in it, really take it in. And, you know, I, I don't want to go all Zen on us here, but, <laughs> you know, I think that, uh, being on the moon, of course, is an, an an unbelievable, amazing thing. But so is every moment of just being alive. Well, that's very true. Right. So I think that's the thing that, that I got out of what he was talking about. And probably he's taken away from that experience as well, is that, you know, every moment has its own kind of fascinating Your, stuff going on that you can really just... Right. You want to be fully present for all of those moments. That's true. Well, we all drop into our own kind of preoccupations and the routines of things that we've seen a thousand times before, and you don't really look at them anymore. So, yeah, appreciate the things around you. Right. So going to the moon is a good way to remind yourself of how great it is just to be back on Earth. Yes. Speaking of Earth... Yes. I understand we're going to make all kinds of fabulous fuels out of... Why? Common grasses, sedges, uh, other kinds of things just grow out of the ground everywhere. Well, according to the cover of this issue. The grassoline cover, that's right. Well, that's certainly the hope. It's, of course, this is, uh, relates to the whole area of development for people talk about biofuels, which is this idea of trying to develop 
replacements for the conventional so sorts of, of fossil fuels that we have um, to at least if we're going to be burning um, some sort of hydrocarbons of some kind to try to get them so that they are uh, being derived from a different source um, and potentially or ideally ones that would actually burn without uh, delivering as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, too. That's great if you can get that. Uh, but so uh, one big area of, of research is this idea of trying to uh, create these sorts of biofuels. And now we have those now, ethanol, um, that you can go to almost any gas station and you can find uh, ethanol very often these days to, to put in, in cars. Um, but uh, but the problem is that most of the ethanol we have right now is when they talk about it being a first generation biofuel. That is, that ethanol fuel is is coming from the fermentation of sugars in cro from crops like corn, which means it's a very, very expensive way of getting that kind of ethanol. You have to put a lot of energy into raising that corn, not to mention the fact that you're diverting a, a potential food crop like corn uh, to the, a, a use like making fuel. So uh, there's a lot of interest in trying to develop these kinds of what they would call second generation biofuels. These would be uh, uh, new types of, of bioethanol or, or other sorts of, of potential fuels that would be made by converting the cellulose, the, the, the stocky, woody material that uh, really makes it the structure of most plants. Uh, we have lots of that. And if you could inexpensively convert that into uh, some sort of good fuel efficiently, uh, then then potentially that gives you a, a great alternative source of fuel. And what are some of the big challenges in getting at that energy that's locked up in the cellulose? Well, you know, in some respect, I mean, there are, in a way you could divide them up into the, the technical challenges and the economic challenges. The technical challenges, of course, are just how do you do it? Now, in fact, you've got several different avenues for doing that. Um, and in fact, one of them, um, the, the process of creating syngas has been around for quite some time. Back in World War II, it was being used with a Fischer-Tropsch uh, uh, reaction. Anyway, it's a process for being able to, uh, to create some sorts of, of synthetic gas that way. Don't ask me. I was only a chemistry major. Yeah. <laughs> So, so syngas meaning synthetic gasoline. Exactly. But the problem is that's a very high temperature process. Um, and which means if it's taking, if it involves high temperatures, then you're sinking a lot of energy into creating it most likely, unless you have a cheap source of heat available. So the, the real goal is to try to figure out what is a way to be able to do this at very low temperatures, very inexpensively. Ideally something where you could, you know, take vats of uh, cellulose that have been and mashed up and uh, be able to throw in the right kinds of catalysts and some reactants and be able to have the, the fuel you want uh, pouring off the other side really, really efficiently, really, really inexpensively. Easy to say, not always easy to do. So that's that's the technical challenge in all of this. Right, and then there's the economics. The economic challenge is, of course, that basically all of these kinds of biofuels are ultimately in competition with regular old gasoline uh, that you would have the pump. And for as long as oil is really, really cheap, which, you know, for the most part, we're sort of happily in the situation that it's a lot less expensive than it was uh, a couple of years ago, um, that means that it's hard for some of these kinds of biofuels to, to get a, a, a purchase on the market. So uh, that's that's going to be a different part of the challenge and all that. And that's obviously a shifting target. You know, uh, I just was visited by my dad, who has, as many members of his generation do, 
has long harbored the belief that somewhere somebody has invented a pill. <laughs> Let me guess <laughs> that you can drop into the uh, into water and and your car will run on that. That's right. Yes. So uh, I have tried numerous times to dissuade him of this notion on thermodynamic grounds. <laughs> All and, right. Uh, and uh, he brought it up again this weekend, and I said to him, no, actually, Dad, you're right. There will soon be a car that can run on water. What you're going to have to do is you take the water, <laughs> you heat it up until it forms steam, and then you run the car on the steam. Yeah, that's right. He said it's very inefficient, though, and it's probably not going to catch on. I'm, I'm much more... Uh, optimistic about your plug-in hybrids or your plug-in pure electric vehicle. Yeah, yours yours was, I think, good 1890s uh, technology. Exactly. Uh, now, you do re- realize that there will be a certain number of people who will listen to us having this conversation and say, ah, they're all part of the big conspiracy. Yes, it's true. We're part of the conspiracy that accepts the fact that a certain amount of energy is stored in chemical bonds and another amount of energy must go into opening up those chemical bonds to release the energy and sooner or later, when push comes to shove, something gets pushed and something else gets shoved. <laughs> why, oh, why are you so closed-minded on this? I know, I know. You chemist, you. <laughs> I know. What about, yeah, you mentioned the economics, the technical. What about, uh, it's not in the article, the political problem when your when your first presidential primary and I brought this up mm-hmm. if you go back to the podcast with Thomas Friedman right when your first presidential primary is in Iowa the constituency for corn ethanol is powerful beyond its size mm-hmm. well that's that's definitely always been a concern you know that, that that's it would be wonderful from a sort of technocratic view of reality if, you know, you could imagine that, well, all the scientists would figure out the the best way to do something and then, you know, wave of the hands and somehow everything would uh, drop into place. The reality is it's, you know, it's going to be part of a political process. Uh, policy has to work itself through elections and all the all the rest of the lawmaking process that we have. And uh, even if you are a, a big staunch believer in the the values of uh, representative democratic government the way we are uh, the fact is that uh, it's still not always pretty or efficient or as effective as everybody would like so yes um right now the agricultural lobby is exerting a very strong influence on a lot of uh, a lot of of, of things affecting biofuel policy and actually other parts of uh, policies that uh, relate to climate change uh, so it's uh, it's it's awkward that way if we get that first primary or caucus move to Arizona the solar energy lobby is going to really do well <laughs> so uh, we also have an article in this issue on the the desperate need for antibi- a new new kinds of antibiotics for these superbugs right. really yeah that's and right you know, new ways to squash superbugs is the title of the piece, mm-hmm. and uh, you know begins with the, the the story of MRSA that hit a couple of years ago. Right, MRSA, which is MRSA, the methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is uh, you know the highly drug resistant form of staph infections, which uh, you know can be can be lethal. So what do we do? Well, it's a real problem because, as you say, you know, we're you you've got a couple of problems going on simultaneously. One is the fact that just through the use of the antibiotics that we have and that we've traditionally relied on, uh, that that of course they are losing a lot of their potency. The the bacteria 
populations that are out there are increasingly resistant because, of course, they're all descended from the populations of bacteria that were more resistant to those than uh, than the wider population used to be. Uh, you've also got a big problem that is we increasingly see. Bacteria tend to be very, very profligate in the ways that they sort of throw around these genes for resistance. So even if you start off with, say, a resistant type of staph infection, uh, that, that that line of of staph organisms, not, not only will they be more resistant, but they may pass some of the genes for that resistance off to completely other unrelated types of bacteria. Because you have these lateral transmissions in bacterial populations. Right, right, which they just hand genes to one another. Uh, so that's bad. And of course, for many, many years, the, uh, you know, there was a, there was a period, many listeners may remember, there was a, there was a, uh, what now just seems like sort of an astonishingly naive period, I believe in the 1970s for a while, when antibiotics were so effective and the, the level of, of this sort of, of transmissible disease was falling down so low that some people were really just thinking that we kind of beaten uh, these kinds of infectious diseases. So for a lot of reasons, the pipeline of development that the pharmaceutical companies had uh, for developing new kinds of antibiotics really slowed down. And uh, by the time it became clear that we really needed a lot of new antibiotics because the old ones weren't working as well, it just it slowed everything down. You were going to have a huge number of years with new drugs not coming online. So we're still currently stuck in that problem. Um, the other problem, this is one of the things that the, the article uh, in the July issue goes into, is that unfortunately we've pretty much already harvested the low-hanging fruit. Uh, most of the antibiotics that we know are compounds that are produced by different kinds of soil bacteria. And although there are, I can't even imagine how many different types of soil bacteria and how many millions of different compounds that they may produce, the fact is we've actually already skimmed off and looked at and developed a lot of the best of those for antibiotics. So uh, what's possible in the future is that if we really need to have better antibiotics, we need to start to look in new places and we need to start to be a lot more inventive. Uh, one thing is to start looking in places where, that we haven't really searched over very carefully. So for example, marine organisms. Uh, a lot of marine organisms may have these sorts of antibacterial properties and we just, you know, if they, they, they may have those sorts of antibacterial molecules and they may operate, operate on means that are fundamentally different from the ones that the soil did. Um, and that's the case, if that's the case, then uh, we may have some other new kinds of drugs we could, could develop that way. Um, it may also be that we can, as, uh, now that our understanding of bacterial genetics is a lot more sophisticated than it used to be, that we may be able to independently tailor some other kinds of drugs that would intervene uh, in in their own internal mechanisms uh, a little more cleverly. Uh, and it's also possible that with our better understanding of how bacteria function as part of an environment with other bacteria and with their host organisms, that may represent a kind of relatively untouched uh, set of, of potential vulnerabilities that we could take advantage of. Right. We may be able to strengthen the bacteria that an infectious organism is competing with right and That's use right. our own internal uh, uh, intestinal flora, for example, mm -hmm. to drive off 
the bacterial infection. Right. So the good news is that uh, it's not quite the case that the well is totally dry on new ideas for, for better antibiotics. The catch is a lot of these are still in a very early stage of development. It may be you know, still quite a few years before we see a lot of those develop. But things are coming. Is another interesting idea is don't kill the bacteria. Just make, make them so they can't get you sick. Right. But they still, they still infect you. They're still alive. But for all intents and purposes, you know, they're powerless. Right. I mean, most of us are constantly walking around with, uh, you know, a number of different pathogens in our system all the time. The question is, there aren't enough of them to be a real problem. Uh, and so, you know, it may be a matter of just being able to suppress the populations or changing their own interactions with the rest of their environment inside your body. That's a part of the July issue. Other other good stuff, origins of your two hemispheres in your brain. We've got something on using forensics to track the DNA of ivory that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's evidence for poaching, which, of course, most people would want stopped. Right. You got Gary Sticks' article on the science of bubbles and bursts about how, you know, the a lot of economic theory assumes that the individuals in a market are rational players which may not be the case. <laughs> Past few years' <laughs> worth of news have been textbook refutations of that. And, of course, one of my favorite uh, sections of the magazine that we usually talk about a little bit, the 50, 100, and 150 years ago. Column? Column, that's it. Steve, what <laughs> was in the magazine? 150 years ago. Here's a real indication of how cultural mores may change over time. 150 years ago... We wrote, a pernicious excitement to learn and play chess has spread all over the country, (laughs) and numerous clubs for practicing this game have been formed in cities and villages. Why should we regret this, it may be asked? We answer, chess is a mere amusement of a very inferior character, which robs the mind of valuable time that might be devoted to nobler requirements, while it affords no benefit whatever to the body. Chess has acquired a high reputation as being a means to discipline the mind, but persons engaged in sedentary occupations should never practice this cheerless game. They require out-of-door exercises, not this sort of mental gladiatorship. Wow. Can you imagine we came out against chess? (laughs) Well, as you know, Steve, it's well established that the playing of chess leads to the playing of whist and mumbledypeg. It's a gateway game. All the articles in the July Scientific American are available free for a limited time at the website scientificamerican.com. And look for John Rennie in print, radio, and television. He is the king of all media. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, Michael Jackson's death stressed the web to the point that the average time for downloading news sites more than doubled. Story two, greenhouse gas emissions could interfere with fish's ability to navigate. Story three, researchers have found fossil evidence for a kind of piranha that was three feet long. And story four, the Mars Spirit rover, which has been stuck in the same place since early May, has finally run out of power ending its almost five and a half years of exploration. Time's up. Story one is true. 
Michael Jackson's death really stressed the web. Most major news sites had some problems, and the average download time went from less than four seconds to more than nine, according to datacenterknowledge.com. Twitter had to turn off search features to keep from getting knocked out. Story two is true. Carbon in the atmosphere winds up acidifying the ocean, which could lead to changes in fish anatomy related to navigation. In lab tests, researchers raised sea bass at different carbon dioxide concentrations, and saw changes in the development of ear bones, which help fish sense speed and direction. For more, see our blog item called "Changing Ocean Chemistry Might Jam Fish Ears." Story three is true. The three-foot-long piranha has been dubbed Mega Piranha. It lived eight to ten million years ago, according to our friends at LiveScience.com. Despite many scary movie scenes, there's never been a documented human death from piranhas. All of which means that story four about the Mars rover Spirit finally powering down for good is totally bogus. Spirit has indeed been stuck in the same place since early May, but wind cleared off its solar arrays, and it has plenty of juice. So it's been using its various tools to analyze the layers of soil that its busted wheel has scoured up. Meanwhile, in simulations here on Earth, researchers are still working on ways to free up the rover, which was originally designed for a 90-day mission. That's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news and Jesse Baring's piece on the evolutionary enigma of dreams. You know, sometimes when sleep knits your raveled sleeve of care, a bad dream can unravel it. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thanks very much, John. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. On behalf of myself and all the boys, I hope we pass the audition. <laughs>